Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, it's going very well. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else. If this is the first time you are tuning in, uh, be sure to check out all of our content. Go to YouTube. Uh, we have, I mean, over 300 podcasts. Go to Spotify or the iTunes, wherever you listen to podcasts. Type in Focus Compounding and make sure you hit that subscribe button. Uh, tons of content out there going on almost like, what, three and a half, four years now. I've uh, been doing this for a long time. Uh, Jeff has been writing about investing since 2005. And hey, guess what? You want to get access to that? Go to focuscompounding.com and hit that free content uh, button on the toolbar and you could go all the way back to 2005. Young Jeff and read about, uh, it's really your investing journey. Have you actually gone through and ever uh, read any of your old posts on the free content part of the website? No. No, <laughs> it doesn't surprise <laughs> me one bit. Well, it took me all of like I don't know, a week to get all that uploaded on there because I had to do it manually. Uh, but lucky for all of us, uh, you could go to Focus Compounding and it's for free. And you click that free content and uh, basically any sort of investing topic, I would say, uh, if it's within what we do and our style, uh, there's a post on it. So go to Focus Compounding and uh, check that out. So in today's podcast, we are going to be doing a Q&A, uh, answering uh, questions from people on Twitter. Uh, to be able to do this in the future or ask us a question, um, uh, go to Twitter and follow me at Focused Compound. Um, it's a great way to connect with our viewers and basically talk about what's on their minds um and it's always uh you know we got a lot of questions so we could uh start and get through as many as possible um first question for uh for hashtag g-e-o-f-f -F. he started the hashtag of okay. your name Good. Uh, so if we ever start an etf by the way it has to be g-e-o-f-f -F. all right so we gotta uh, book that uh will it what will it take for celsius to become the next monster well, so, you would better be able to answer that than I would. Speaking he has of, a Celsius speaking of right this, there. Right here, I'm drinking Celsius. So I got a, a little gripe with Celsius. I will say this. So I always drink the sparkling orange Celsius. Okay. okay. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you notice anything or if you've seen what Celsius, the orange version cans look like, but the newer ones, they have a black top. Okay. And some places around here, they sell ones that aren't the black top. It's a silver one. So I don't know if this is old or whatever, but it definitely tastes different than the ones with the black top do. Oh, the it's ones not with psychological. The, uh, it's, no, it's it, purely not psychological. Okay. I mean, not at all. I mean, it's really, if I look at the expiration, it's September 20, uh, it says 2-2, two -two, so 2022 maybe. Okay. I don't so, know if they So that's new, the, probably, unless they have a two-year shelf life. May I don't know, but the black ones taste better, they're more flavorful, and they're more carbonated as well. Oh, okay. So just something that I've noticed. But uh, Celsius, we looked at the company, uh, <laughs> uh, what, just a year and a half ago, and it was a uh, $300 million company maybe. $400 million company and now it's yeah. a $5.2 million company. Okay. So on its way to becoming the next monster, I guess you could say. Well, it better be in the price of sales. Price to sales 34 times. Yeah. Um, EV to sales 34 times. So, I mean, 10 times would be crazy expensive usually for a company. Um, there are some companies that justify that because of how high their margins are. But, it, I mean, that's a very new era phenomenon when you have double digit price to sales ratios. And this is many times that, so. They're growing like crazy. Yes. I think uh, I saw, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, even the quarterly numbers. Now, of course, you could say they benefit from COVID. I don't, I think if anything, that growth will be still pretty meaningful after COVID. Oh, yeah, sure. So this um, company would have benefited from COVID because this is something that people drink with, you know, it, it doesn't, it isn't affected at all by restaurant sales and things like that. So, mm -hmm. and Yeah. But they're growing like a weed. Um, any thoughts on how it could become the next monster energy, which is one of the best performing stocks over the past 20 years? Mm -hmm. Or is the quickest 100 bagger, correct? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, we did look at it that way. Um, no, I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I don't know as much what their uh, customer base is like. I do wonder about that, the psychographic aspect of it, and sort of things like that with, with Celsius, of uh, who drinks it. Um, obviously, that's a big thing for Monster and Red Bull and stuff, is focusing on, on certain groups and selling it that way, which is important, so building into a real brand that way. 
Uh, I think they were successful that way to go way beyond what you would expect for it that way. So this is a little bit closer to its roots um, in terms of its marketing so far, but it looks like some of that's changing. I mean, I think that was a big part of its change in terms of how wide the distribution is and everything like that mm -hmm. now. So, yeah, I don't think a lot of people are... I mean, it still talks about it so much as a health thing. But definitely, if you look at what it was a few years ago, certain the way the company described itself and, and stuff like that, they're definitely going the direction of trying to just be uh, in the energy drink category without as much of the health stuff. But it does have a lot of the health stuff in there. Very high caffeine. Yeah, so 200 that's, that's, milligrams, 200. Yeah, that's pretty uh, impressive. You could have that and you'd replace it. I mean, coffee is very... Um, Difficult to tell from place to place, but you know, what is that? One and a half cups of coffee, something mm -hmm. like that at yeah. a, a typical place. Their headquarters is uh Boca Raton. <laughs> yes. I do know that. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. I'm seeing it everywhere and I, don't, mm -hmm. I still have yet to meet anybody that has tried it and doesn't like it and doesn't drink them a lot. I mean, you, maybe you're actually the first. I don't know. I'll drink, you, the, you, I'll drink the cola. Yeah. The cola. One. I don't like get that a different. Palette, well, they maybe. put out a ton of stuff. And then I think they stop making some of them or, or people stop buying, you know, the certain stores stop buying them so that you see it shrink down the the uh, uh, amount of, you know, if they keep coming out with stuff, then there's going to be fewer choices at some places. I mean, they're not giving them more shelf space, so you're going to see some flavors disappear. So um, I do not like, basically, I don't like fruit flavored things that much. Um, you know, fruity things. It's not really. Mm. Um, so, and I'd say almost all of their stuff is some sort of fruit flavor. Yeah. I've actually yet to have the cola one. I don't think maybe I tried one yours. Yeah. One time, must, but. I think it's probably an acquired taste, but, uh, yeah, I don't really like the ones that taste like fruit stuff. So that has nothing to do with Celsius or anything wrong with them. It's just that I don't really like drinking fruit flavored things or yeah. eating fruit flavored stuff. Well, I think it's the greatest product on the planet and I drink one basically every single day. Is that it? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, so just one a day. Yeah, I've been sipping it throughout the day, and I feel like it. Uh, I feel better instead of slamming it when I get it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you know, and has the, this at all replaced for you coffee? Yeah, tea, soda. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, that caffeine comes from green tea, which the way your body metabolizes it um, is different than yeah, green tea leaf extract is different than caffeine from coffee. Instead of coffee being just like right to your face, slam it supposedly green tea the way your body metabolizes it is it's much more of a long lasting throughout the day well, uh, type of caffeine we're not medical experts so who knows that's an insane amount of caffeine to be able to get from tea so they can't be extracting it the same way just the same way. tea leaves have more caffeine per pound and stuff than coffee beans but no one just you know um brews them the same way so yeah i don't know and it's got seven essential vitamins jeff <laughs> yeah it does have a lot of stuff about vitamins and all that it has some very high quantities but it's got a high quantities of uh it's about everything. But anyway, the, it does have a high caffeine yeah, content. Lots yeah, of, lots of caffeine. Yeah, I mean, the thing that's appealing about it, obviously, is the w that matters is wide distribution, right? Yeah. And zero calories for people today. Those are the things that matter a lot. Mm -hmm. The price has to be somewhat reasonable, but it doesn't have to be super cheap because they, they sell a lot that way. Now, uh, one issue that they might have versus other things we're talking about to be the next monster or something is uh, I don't know how much they sell in... Um, Lar in larger quantities at once it, it certainly initially it seemed to me the way it was being shelved and stuff was trying to get it as a uh one-off sort of buy from people mm -hmm. that they would buy consistently and stuff at a higher uh price point but that we're not talking about like supermarket type sales that they'd be getting whereas things like monster that you're talking about now they're just in the same category as colas basically i mean they're just another choice for that but they're distributed much the same way and, and sold and used the same way so what does celsius do do they end up like what's the end game for them do they become the monster and start to have other you know maybe the, i mean the logical thing would be so they're acquired by sell it, it. Yeah, yeah yeah um that would definitely seem to be the logical one but i don't know that uh, will happen um but it would make a lot of sense as part of someone else's portfolio obviously Mm -hmm. but not a, you know it would be difficult to make a deal work at prices like this obviously yeah next question let's say you own a business that is over earning significantly in a given year due to external economic circumstances you expect it to return to long-term profitability levels in the coming year or two how would you think about your investment in such a hypothetical scenario so i don't care um, that I know it's going to report lower earnings next year. I know a lot of people like to get out before it has the bad earnings and stuff. And sometimes that's true, especially more overlooked things and stuff that we do. Sometimes you're surprised by 
that people aren't following it so much to predict what you know that people are surprised by it in a sense mm-hmm. um whether the results are very good or very bad and, and so uh because a lot of times it's kind of pr- can be predicted ahead of time based say, on what we know i feel like yeah. generally we know that yeah i want to talk about bank things or whatever um i mean w- when we look at some of the reports and things there's some stuff i might not know but honestly a bunch of the lines come in exactly as you'd expect because we actually knew what interest rates were going to be during the quarter or whatever and, and things like that um so same sort of things whether it's covid things or or whatever i mean if you owned a movie theater chain you should know what they're going to report because you can see the box office every week yeah mm-hmm. so it's reported everywhere so you would know and just match up with the calendar so um people tried to time it though right both getting in and getting out yeah so i wouldn't matter to me that way now the other issue though is did them earning more money uh what does that do longer term so I've talked about this once with an insurance company. There was a, an insurance company that I invested in, and it lost a lot of money one year. I, I didn't invest until after, you know, I bought it after it lost all the money and stuff a little bit later. But my point was, it's just going to earn the same amount of money it earned before, because it doesn't require that much capital to write the same amount of business. Um, so the situation that it was in is like, let's say it was writing half the premiums that it could possibly write. Okay, then you lose. You know, as long as you lose less than half of your balance sheet, you're not going to say, oh, we can't have the same amount of premiums this year as last year. You may not expand your business, but there's no reason for you to contract it. Mm -hmm. And so you earn the same amount of money, right? So on the other hand, with some growing insurer things, they double their capital because they have a great year. That means they could write even more business than you thought the next year. So it really does make a difference for those. On the other hand, you have the flip side in some if everything went really well in the industry, it could be bad after this. So, I mean, it would depend. We talked about home builders and stuff. Um, I, I think that there's been a lot of built up demand over time for homes that hasn't been met yet. But the way this normally works with the cyclicality there, um, they're gonna there's gonna be overbuilding and stuff. You know, that's what would happen if the, if it attracts too many people too fast into certain industries. So, actually, having a really good year could mean particularly bad things in the future. And I know in some letters, Buffett wrote about that. That you know, kind of saying, look, insurance prices firmed up a lot, but actually, that's bad for us longer term because uh, it invites more people to come in and, and compete, um, and actually, it just leads into a cyclical downturn that way. Um, so that's kind of what contributes to cyclicality. But that's an industry where you, people can move really fast, right? Mm-hmm. You don't have to do anything. Um, when there are things that there's more supply constraints because of actual physical stuff, it takes a lot more than just putting your name to something to be able to um, sell the product, then you know it, it could just be all around just a good thing. So it, it really depends on the kind of economic consequences of that good year. Um, businesses that can earn a consistent return on capital, though, it's worth more to them to have a few good years because it can change the trajectory of the business where they get bigger and make more money. Whereas like capital light businesses and stuff like that, it's not going to matter. Um, you know, demand is what it is in the future. And all they, this is sort of like getting one special dividend that they had a great year. Well, then they can pay that out to people or they can buy back stock with it or whatever, but it doesn't really make the core business more profitable in future years. But I don't like try to get out of it, but I know lots of people that, who do. And I, some that are quite successful that way, mm-hmm. getting in and out based on, these sorts of things that they know the stock kind of runs up because people kind of uh, expect the, you know, they react too much to this current quarter or this current year's earnings as if it's sustainable. Yeah. I mean, well, there's a lot of companies that are going to have tough comps from the previous year. So there's a lot of people that say, well, you could just get out now and buy it back lower potentially and stuff like that. And that's just not something that we do. Yeah. By that logic, you know, you should, coming out of COVID, people should have bought everything, right? Because they have the easiest comps imaginable. Mm, yeah, it's true. Um, imagine you own a five to 10 stock portfolio. Over the weekend, it is announced that all 10 companies are merging and will be subsidiaries under a single capital allocator that you like. Do you make any portfolio changes? You still own the same companies, but now one stock, not 10. That's a very Great good question. question. Yeah. Uh, depends. Who's the, who's if the it's, one If it's a it? financial company, I sell a little financial company i saw a little okay they because ultimately they have one balance sheet for all their strength for that way and, and so you do have this risk of this one capital allocator there that um could imperil the company because they rely on other people's money they need access to it and stuff like that and so it does change things uh you know the write-up i just did i mentioned the company had been lowered from a um a minus 
uh, to a be something by um, by AM Best. Yeah. And uh, that meant that they couldn't sell insurance in certain ways to some people because without that A minus, um, you won't be allowed to. Um, just other companies won't won't do it. It's not a regulatory thing, but um, it helps to have that kind of thing. That that uh, what effectively is like a credit rating for an insurance company. There, same thing for um, as we saw with you know uh, GE or any of those sorts of things where they having access to cheap financing is helpful. So you can really mess things up if you have a capital allocation mistake if you're using liabilities and stuff that way. So uh, because financial companies use other people's money, they can't count on. Uh, they have to have access to credit, basically. That's the one that would be different. So I would not put 100% in one financial company if they all merge together. I would rather own 10 uh, banks or whatever than own one bank. Uh, all those 10 banks are run by one person. Mm-hmm. But other than that, no. So I, I, I answered a question like that once a long time ago with like... Um, you know, Disney or something like that, where, you know, you uh, people said, like, would stock. you buy one stock? Mm-hmm. And and uh, I know a lot of people would say, you know, Berkshire Hathaway or something. But I think there's a difference between Disney and Berkshire Hathaway mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the way it's structured. It is easier for someone to really imperil the business, the wrong leadership at the top at, at one Berkshire. company more so than the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is the highest level of concentration an individual investor should be willing to place into a single stock when buying? Specifically, asking about non-special situations, more long-term holdings. Presumably, at some point, cat risk is too high even when you have an edge. It's hard to say. Um, if you're earning money every year and saving, then obviously you can afford to put 100% in um, because actually cat risk doesn't present much of a problem to you not being able to invest over the long term. However, if you're taking all the savings that you made and now you're retiring and you know you'll never make any money again, then it's severely dangerous. Um, however, it's particularly dangerous in the first few years, but you know, that's the way to measure it. Um, a lot of people focus on like percent of the portfolio, but like I said, if you're saving over time, then actually it would be very safe to put everything into a stock because next year you're going to have that same amount of money again to put into another stock. And so while you could lose everything, it's not a catastrophe because next year you'll have earnings to do it. So it depends entirely on whether you're going to be making money over time. Um, so if you're playing, you are, you know, 22 years old or whatever. It and it depends on your age. Well, but if you're 22 years old and you inherit something and you're never going to work, then you have you have to behave completely differently than someone who's 22 years old and is going to be making high earnings but has no capital. Mm-hmm. If you're going to have high earnings and no capital, then you can afford to put a ton into things. Um, but if you have a lot of capital and no earnings, then you can't. And so that's the difference. Mm-hmm. So I think almost everyone assume, treats it as if your pool of capital that you have now is the pool you're going to have forever. Um, that's not the right way of thinking about it. I think it's true for individuals. I think that's also true for things like financial institutions and stuff, thinking the same way. It depends on the flows in and out over time. That's what you have to be worrying about and not about what, how much you're allocating today. You know, um, uh, Somebody wants to know about owning stocks in different currencies, things to avoid and things to be mindful of. I mean, you can hedge if you want to. Uh, there's a few issues that I see with that. One, I, I so... A lot of times I see that people um, aren't really thinking about the fact that the company's earning money in uh, certain currencies around the world anyway. And if they're earning it in local terms in each of those places, then what you're hedging would be the stock price. But unless the company's also hedging, it doesn't make sense to me. So I'll see that mistake with people like, say, it was you know Hunter Douglas in the Netherlands. Half of their earnings are from the U.S. costs and um, and uh, exp- you know costs and revenues both in the U.S. It's all done in the country it's not importing exporting stuff and then you'll think okay well i should hedge 100 percent of this in euros well you know that actually 50 percent of it's already in the same currency that you in um, as american will already have mm-hmm. and so that's a big factor so i think that can be um can be odd that way so i'd be cautious about doing that um you can look at, you know, whatever, the Big Mac index and those sorts of things to get an idea of what currencies might be very overvalued or very undervalued. Avoid the ones that are very overvalued unless you want to hedge it. Um, but I think most people, I mean, if you just avoided being very overvalued, most people I know c- could sort of benefit, certainly wouldn't be hurt by the fact that you're diversifying into other currencies, you know? Um 
I don't know. Stocks aren't the same as like a bond where you're trying to exactly match something off. You're not planning to do this one thing that you're doing for an annuity to um, be able to live off of. You don't need it all in one currency. You know, um, if that was true, people shouldn't buy hard assets and things because they're completely uncorrelated with, you know, the, the currency that you're in. So I think that's the way to do it. For most people, I think they want to hedge. You know, my complaint with the hedging thing is, the problem with hedging stuff that I've seen with all sorts of companies, all sorts of people is you have to constantly make the decision to continue to keep the hedge on basically. And so what happens is while people think that they'll be hedged this way, it's not the same as hedging in certain other ways. So for instance, if you're short a stock and long a convertible preferred, you're hedged and you don't have to make the decision every month or whatever to roll over this hedge. You're hedged, you'll convert, and then you'll uh, close out the short position by doing that and that's forever. Yeah, that's completely different psychologically for people than keeping on a hedge when it seems to them that it becomes absurdly expensive or whatever. And so I've always seen problems with people actually maintaining a hedge that they thought they should have. But I'm sure that, you know, professionals that trading things and stuff have people who make sure that that continues to happen. Mm-hmm. I've seen companies use hedges very badly. So if they're not doing it to what industries their, oil, all industries. Hmm. and they do a terrible job i mean berkshire doesn't believe in hedging basically i think he would rather tell his companies not to hedge it um some of them do but i've yeah i've seen in a bunch of different things where they hedge things like oil and uh they managed to actually lose money over time Mm -hmm. because that they decided that the hedge shouldn't be as complete at certain times as others wasn't there a cruise company that did that yeah hedging of it and it's not you know and they got whacked by it kind of didn't they yeah, it's not important. I mean, it's not really important to do. I mean, we could get into this. Was but, it Royal? Uh, it there's Royal Caribbean and Carnival both. Uh, Royal Caribbean, I believe, was trying to hedge more than Carnival. Um, yeah. I believe that was true at the time, but I don't remember it exactly. So I wanted... The, yeah, they're a little more concerned about certain financial things, so maybe they did. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Next question, if Jeff had 50K to invest and was starting now, will he invest strictly on micros, micros and small, or something else? I'm Long Baba, NIU, and a couple more, but they're too small a percentage of my portfolio. I lost my parents and fell in love with investing and learning about it. Sorry to hear that. Yeah. I don't know if he's implying he inherited a portfolio maybe, or maybe he inherited capital and is putting it to work. But I guess uh, if you had 50,000 invests and you were starting now, would you focus? Yeah. I don't know if it's now as in as a beginner or now as in the market. Maybe let's just go with the market. I focused on a really small situation if I had that kind of money. Yeah. Okay. Um, Next question. I mean, there's just so many more. I mean, just so people know, there's so many more. Like if you think about it, the the number of opportunities that you have and just the number of them is so much greater. When you pick a high market cap for something, there's just so many fewer companies that have that market cap. Mm -hmm. And so even though, you know, micro caps are a tiny part of the overall um, market capitalization of an index of of, um, the total amount of shares traded and stuff. Um, you know, probably half of all the companies out there are microcaps. If you just took every list, every company you could buy, every sort of really publicly traded company listed or not in the U.S., for instance. Um, and then I would focus on whatever country was my home country, or if it had an advantage that way and stuff. Something very local, probably that way. Something very focused. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you have a really small amount of money to invest, um, you can get very good returns because anything, no matter how sort of inefficient you could invest in, because other people can't. You know, so there can be things, special situations and stuff, sure. Um, sometimes they're attractive that way, yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you automatically filter out large businesses or are they considered but just not normally overlooked? Would you ever buy a very large business? I don't know. Uh, greater than a hundred billion. Greater than a hundred billion? Yeah. Uh, and maybe if there's a ton of inflation in the future, but <laughs> I, but otherwise, no. Greater than a hundred billion is no. I can't imagine that. I just can't imagine that something greater than 100 billion would be really cheap, and I couldn't find something that was a lot less than that. That that's really rare. Um, yeah, this is a great question. Banks have experienced a remarkable increase in deposits recently. What are your thoughts on this? Should a bank investor be cautious about the staying power of those deposits? Oh um, no, not really. I mean, I wouldn't worry about that. I would consider it probably more sticky, right? For certain banks. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, it would depend. So, um, you know, generally, if you had like a lot higher inflation and things like that, the deposits really won't be as sticky as they seem to be in that people have to pay higher rates for them. People would want a more time money and things like that. When your rates are near zero, then then they're probably pretty sticky because it, mm-hmm. people don't care as much about the the interest rates that they're getting. And, you know, inflation and, and interest rates and stuff aren't in the news all the time. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it depends on the company and stuff. But, you know, generally what banks are doing is not it's not like they're taking a bunch of deposits and suddenly making very long-term loans that can't be sold or anything. I mean, they're usually staying more liquid than that. So I wouldn't worry about deposits flowing out. If, if they flow in and flow out immediately and stuff, they're never even going to make a bunch of money off of it. You know, it's not going to make much of a difference, but if they flow in and they have some place to put them, then you're going to see money go up from that way. But, uh, yeah, I mean, just the typical things you would do to look at a bank's position and stuff in terms of liquidity and, and things. But, but I mean, it's in the U S right now, it's not like there's a lot of banks that are, are not liquid enough and don't, don't have enough capital and things like that. Yeah. Mm. Any love for China yet? Uh, no, I don't invest in China. I don't know when I would. Any thoughts on psychometrics since Jeff analyzed and Peter Kamen took a large stake? This Peter Kamen guy is everywhere. Yeah. Um, so it, it's actually funny that this okay. guy asked this question under this guy because this guy right here. I know that. Yeah. He said that, uh, I think he tweeted once that uh, Interactive Brokers thinks he's Peter Kamen. Oh, okay. For like, you know, like affiliation. Well, that would be bad like because he's a, he's an a, a associate of many companies. Yeah. yeah. And he's not Peter Kamen, but that's kind of an ongoing yeah. joke. And as we know from Interactive Brokers and stuff, if they think that you're a large shareholder, you'll never be able to yeah. get anything done. Exactly. Interactive yeah. Brokers is awful. Yeah. Whenever he says he's not Peter Kamen, I'm like, I don't know. Sounds like something Peter Kamen <laughs> would say. Yeah. Um, but any thoughts on psychometrics? Not a lot. Um, so they've gone through, you know, they had a bad um, sort of uh, financial position for a moment there uh, because they paid out everything in dividends. You know, that was mm-hmm. the way they operate their business. So when they paid dividends were very important to that company. Yes. They took yeah. pride in that. If you read yeah. anything on the business, it was, and we've paid a dividend for blah, blah, blah. And I've actually spoken to the CEO and it was mm-hmm. very obvious that dividends were very important. Which is interesting because he's not a huge shareholder of it. He, no. he, he owns plenty of stock, but... Um, and yet he focuses on that. And most people would think that that's not something that he would do given the total stock position he has and you know how much yeah. money he makes from the company and everything, that it wouldn't be such a focus on dividends. But it was. So and you know, that's a small company that did that. Uh the business has not bounced back that well. So, you know, they lost Brazil stuff. Um and uh, you can see they really suffered in terms of their results lately. It would seem like the kind of thing that cyclically would come back in a big way. It's a little weird because it's really tied to a lot of um, usually starting employment. Now, some of the things that they're in may not have come back so much um, from COVID as some other ones, but it should be in theory tied to the um, volume of like new job app, um, applications being processed by a company and stuff. Basically, you know, drug testing and stuff for hiring people. Um, more so than the overall level of employment or anything like that. So you would have thought it would have bounced back more now than before. Uh, we did look at it and stuff. And like I said, I thought their financial position was rough for a little bit in um, COVID. It, it shows you what, how like some really big companies can survive and some small companies can be in dangerous position because this is a company that built up lots of money, uh, that's earned lots of money for a very long time, pay down dividends and stuff. And we'd be predicted after COVID happened to be doing that again. And yet, um, they did not have a lot of liquidity and stuff for a little while there. Yeah. Uh, somebody asks, how do you value a net net with cash being greater than capitalization? The business is not losing money and you don't know what the management will do with cash. The downside is protected, but how to estimate the upside? Right. Well, the downside is only protected if management doesn't buy something that's worth a lot less than what they pay for it. So it's okay. Probably if it's not like in tech or something. It's in something like that, then you know they could buy something that turns out to be worthless. They could t- buy something that turns out to go up ten times too. But um, you know, if, if it's that sort of business, the more change and stuff in the business, the more difficult it would be if they um, do that. But in general, negative enterprise value stocks, so cash more than capitalization, have tremendous returns over time all across the world. So as part of a basket, it's a good idea. And if it's good as part of a basket, then maybe a a purchase of it would make sense that way. I do always want to warn people though, fraud. You know, um, you have to be sure it's not a fraud. Mm-hmm. Most things that people bring me that are as described there, 
I would suspect are frauds. Not because of that. I've invested in plenty of them in Japan and stuff. But just like when you look at them, they look like fraud. So Mm -hmm. that's probably why people are steering clear of it normally. A negative enterprise value stock that value investors are avoiding tends to be that there's signs of fraud. And then he asks, what's the mathematical explanation of using free cash flow yield plus growth? Oh, so that only uh, works, of course, if um, what we're talking, I mean, free cash flow yield plus growth works. But if what we're really talking about is... um, it's easiest in situations in which their company in the company is not um, uh, investing a lot in hard uh, assets and things like that that might grow over time. Really, what matters is the comprehensive income, what's, what's going up over time. So like Berkshire Hathaway, free cash flow yield plus growth wouldn't matter because some of it would be showing up in non-cash ways, right? He buys stocks and those stocks go up. Yeah, That's not giving him any credit for Apple going up or something. But for many companies looking at them, this would be the most logical way. Uh, it would give you an explanation that should explain much of the stock's movement, except for um, any expansion or contraction in the multiple over time. So it gives you an idea of the long-term return in the stock. How do you value companies that you believe can grow north of 10% per year for the near future, i.e. 10 years or more? Um, I mean, that's fairly easy, I guess you could say, in that... Um, Basically, if you want a market type return or something like that, then you would want to pay a market type multiple for it. If you want a better than market return, you want to pay a lower multiple for it. And, and otherwise, it doesn't really matter that much. So if you're telling me that it's you really feel strongly it's going to grow 10% or more for 10 years, um, if you get it at a lower than average multiple, then you should buy it. Uh, if you get it a lot higher than average, then maybe not. Because in essence take whatever the earnings are today and stuff, it's going to go at 10% a year. Your discount rate probably in your mind is not greater than 10% a year, you know, in general for stocks and things. So, you know, you'd beat the market if you buy it 15 times P and you expect 15 times P to be a normal P. So what you're telling me from that basically is if the PE ratio looks good versus what PE ratios normally look good, it's a buy. If not, it might not be. Um, That'd be totally different if it was 20% or 5% or something. But at 10%, we're pretty close to probably the discount rate that people put on the market. I would not expect the market long-term to do better than 10%. So as long as you don't overpay, you know, versus historical norms, you're good. What do you both think about the idea of if you're young, just starting to work to dollar cost average into objectively expensive stocks, but also objectively good businesses, basically throwing valuation out the equation when you have very little sums and regular cash inflows. So somebody talked about that in Richer, Wiser, Happier. One of the managers did that. I forget who, but I think yeah. I think he was buying Amazon actually. Okay. And that's what his rationale was to trying to avoid the ex- perceived uh, expensive valuation was to basically dollar cost average into it. Hmm. Okay. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, that, that might work. I mean, to some extent, that should work in that historically, st- stocks have not stayed, s- individual stocks have not stayed so overpriced if they're really good businesses for a very long time. They've managed to stay overpriced for maybe, in retrospect, will look like three years or something, but not for 10. Um, that's rare. So for a business to do really badly over time, it has to usually not be such a great business. Um, so even when we showed something like Microsoft or something, while well, you would have done very badly if you'd invested at the top, uh, if you'd invested in 1996, maybe you would have been doing fine. So your dollar cost averaging would only have been causing you mm-hmm. really bad results for, um, you know, the, the a few years there. But the result, you know, but three years worth of your money or something probably went into something that returned three percent a year for 15 years or whatever it ended up doing. So um, it, you know, it depends. But I, I guess. If that's what people want to do, that might make more sense than uh, re- than relaxing your quality standards. I don't really believe in outsourcing your like decision making about that stuff. So I just have a problem with what that does to your brain. If you think I will buy something completely regardless of price because I'm dollar cost averaging into it, you know, mm-hmm. I just. It's not that the investment itself will necessarily do that bad. That approach might work historically based on how stocks do. That makes sense. But it would be like someone telling me that you should buy every stock that, um, like, for instance, net nets. If someone said you should buy every net net, even the net nets that clearly look like frauds. 
uh, that might work, you know, and historically I think it probably has worked, but the, the, then I would worry about your thought process because you'd be knowing that you're buying things that look like they might be frauds. And if yeah. they might be frauds and the numbers aren't correct. And so it's not really a net net that you're buying. So, I mean, you know, there's probably a point where it's too expensive to me that I just think it, it messes with your brain to think that you should ever buy stocks that are that expensive. But on the other hand, maybe we don't know. And, uh, you know, you can't predict ahead of time. But I just, I don't worry about it from the perspective of the investment itself, but I do worry about it in terms of your thinking and what it does to you when you go on autopilot that way. So, you know, I think like indexing works great for people who never think about the market. Mm -hmm. But indexing, if you think about the market, if you think about picking stocks Constantly and stuff, picking it, it is going to mess with your mind that way to yeah. the extent that you put things in an index because you are realizing that those are two different things. What you're indexing has no, you know, if you look at, if you decide I'm going to do half an index and half my own stock picking, at this point you're looking at and going, well, my index is at 30 whatever times earnings or something. I would never buy stocks that are at that and you maybe start to worry about that. But for some people it might work out okay. I just think it has to do with your, uh, how you can Psyche. handle, yeah, how you can handle that, yeah. What's the title of the book on creativity Jeff mentioned one to two months ago? Yes, the title is a... Um, <laughs> you emailed it to me. I did. Uh, so let's see if we can come up with it. A... I don't want to pull up my okay. email to the well, So I mentioned But a, you didn't email it to me. Hold on one second. All right, I emailed it to him. Um, let's see. So the, what did he ask about it? Let's see what the, the title of the book... That I mentioned one or two months ago. So is a technique for producing ideas? That's, I think that's the one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so I, I think yep. it's a technique for producing ideas. Yes, correct. So yep. we can 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 we um can we Google that or whatever so I can give the author. Yeah. A technique for producing ideas. Yes, a technique for producing ideas is the name of the book by James Webb Young. Step one: gather raw materials. Mm -hmm. Gather both specific and general raw materials. Step mm -hmm. two: digest materials. Start putting different pieces of information together step three internalize materials unconsciously okay jeff you meditating here step four mm -hmm. the eureka mm -hmm. moment step five bring ideas to life yeah so uh, it's a very short book and uh it really doesn't get into specifics and things like examples it's not it's the opposite of how most books are it has exactly what the content like the cliff notes of what you would get out of it and no like elaborating examples and things you know stories and anecdotes and stuff that most have so you can easily read it. Um, there is a Kindle version or something available, and uh, you can also buy it to be printed. I noticed some typos, though. I gotta say, so it's probably version. some sort of print. There's probably they're probably in the Kindle version too, because I think someone probably bought the rights mm. and did a cheap, you know, whatever of it. Because I was gonna bring it in. After that, I thought, oh, I'll bring this book in and show it and stuff. But then I thought, I really don't want to reward these people who did such a bad <laughs> job of publishing this thing. So, so if you want to steal it or whatever, yeah. you can you can do that. But I don't like it when they do these Amazon versions of old things, bring them out, and someone couldn't be bothered to do a good copy edit thing. Um, Kindle, $1.88. Yeah. So probably we'll have typos on it, but they won't bother you so much on the Kindle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have a... Uh, a bad habit of that, yeah, when reading things of, of correcting the typos and stuff in them, but never been a grammar guy. Me, crazy. It's not grammar problems, it's like <laughs> the word is uh clearly not the word that it was. Oh, really? Yeah, so uh, you know, that they um uh it probably uh, I don't know if it's an optical read problem or something like they're trying to automatically do it or what the issue was, but. Um, sometimes that happens though if i listen to an audiobook and i also read like a certain page from it they'll say like in the audiobook will be a completely different sentence so like they read you know is it a slightly it, different edition because yeah. the kindle updates yeah. editions yeah uh -huh. yeah i noticed that 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 unsettled me with a kindle edition recently because i'm reading it and stuff and suddenly at the very end of it it starts mentioning covid and stuff and i'm like this book was published in 2015 i know it yeah. they added a tiny little bit at the end as like the update thing and they just went right into it as if they'd written the book in 2021 uh, a couple more. Somebody asked about uh, insurance title slash finance company like ITIC and WTM. Are they suitable for Davis double plays? Yeah. And I looked up WTM. That is White Mounds Insurance Group. And then right. the investor's title is the other one. Uh, yeah. So investor's title insurance. Uh, 
Well, sort of. So investor title insurance on a PE basis or uh, definitely a Davis double play. On a price to premiums basis, okay, not bad or whatever. Uh, price to book, I don't know that it's price to book has ever really been much above that. So, but it's making a lot of money right now. Uh, I think in the, within the last year or something, they had a quarter where they said their their margin was 20. Uh, they, they include underwriting stuff and um, fees and stuff they earn from other things. But it was 20 some percent, uh, 23%, something like that. And, you know, historically, we're talking these things are down around 10 or something. So uh, on kind of normal margins and things like that, we'd be talking about, uh, the P wouldn't be like five, it would be, you know, 10 or 15 or something like that. So I don't know if it's a Davis double play possibility on the price to book. And a lot of people use price to book for insurer. Uh, but PE certainly, yeah, I just don't think the PE will keep going up by all that much, but that's when that's tough because it's having an amazing year. And yet this is going to add a lot of earnings. Uh, the, I mean, the earnings are a lot of it's either going to be retained or they're going to pay out in dividends. Now, ITIC, Investor's Title, does pay some big special dividends. So they may not really grow all that much in the future. They may take a bunch of this and pay it back. But, um, but yes, it does fit the Davis double play. I don't know about that. I mean, if we're using PE, yes. But you can see that their PE is uh, off the charts that way. So I don't expect, I mean, the Davis L play would expect like that. Can a PE of five go to 10 and 15? Yes. Mm -hmm. Is the price to book really going to go to over three? You know, that's the problem. So, and for those that want to learn about the Davis double play, I actually tweeted it out uh, yesterday, the link, August 23rd. Uh, go look at it. Jeff did a, uh, a post about it. How to use the Davis double play, making money in durable businesses. And he went through and talked a little bit about it. So if that's something you're interested in, go to my Twitter at Focus Compound. Um, last question. Thoughts on Marcus at the current price? So we've talked a lot about movie yeah. theaters, movie studios. And Marcus is a company that we actually did work on. I was just at one of their hotels recently. Oh, really? Where? Marcus in Oklahoma City. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. We've stayed at one in Nebraska. Yeah, in uh, Lincoln. Mm -hmm. in Lincoln. Oscar, yeah. yeah, and it was very obvious that they benefit a lot from trade shows, you know, uh, business-oriented yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, conventions. And conventions, stuff like yeah. yeah. Uh, and we were there. I feel like we we're the only people there. It was like... Well, that was... that was Last winter, right? Yeah, that, yeah. Was, that uh -huh. was... Yeah, bad. Yeah, we were basically the only people there, yeah. Like um, only people in Nebraska? yeah no, yeah we, we were basically yeah we were, we were the only people at that hotel uh, we were the only people traveling for business at that time yeah that was lincoln it wasn't new york but there probably weren't a lot of people traveling for business in new york at that time either mm -hmm. last year um so yeah big impact by the covid thing that was totally a business traveler focused one mm -hmm. you know as covid went on you did see some people traveling for for pleasure but not for business there just was not business travel um so, you know, in general, Cinemark, Marcus, all of those, I am more pessimistic on them now than I was, say, a year ago. Mm -hmm. um, the market is not really. Uh, they're about, some of these companies are about the same way they started in January. Yeah. I don't know if you have a chart of them, but I'd say they're pretty close. So while they may have underperformed the market during the year, their prices are not that different than they started the year. Yeah, look at this is before, oh no, that's, let's see, five years. Yeah, I mean they're not so thirty bucks, so it's still. Oh, they're a down bit. a lot from COVID. Yeah, yeah when that started, yeah, but, but I, I mean the same as this year. Oh, okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Um, so so Cinemark's down a bunch in just year to date. Year to date, no, down I, about a percent. I was gonna say they seem to me to be in general these uh, theater stocks and things seem to be about where they started the year. They had been up for a while and then they came back down. What about AMC, what's going on there? Um, Is so, that even a movie theater company anymore? Yeah, so um, it's up uh, one thousand eight hundred forty-seven percent year to date. Yeah, nice. So I'm concerned about them. I'm concerned about movies as a business more in general than I was before. Yeah, and we'll see how that goes. Cer certainly for the studios too, as well as for the theaters. Um, but yeah, it, the theaters. Um, I am somewhat worried about that in terms of what we've been seeing lately. Now we don't know, but. In general, uh, everything has underperformed what I would predict since since COVID uh, um, 
happened since COVID, since things have sort of reopened since COVID. Uh, free guy, no, but like everything else. So these are way down from what would have been the projections of them. There's a site, um, thenumbers.com people could use. It's okay. T-H-E and then a dash and then numbers and then .com. It's not as good as the old box office mojo was, but it's good. And uh, so this site will give you those sorts of things. If we see the full daily charter, no, go down to weekend estimates. Just click that headline. This? Yeah, the headline. So if you see, they will do a, a projection each uh, week and they'll give uh, they they use the terms projected versus predicted so when they predict something um, that is what they had going into the model beforehand and then projected is what is now they're projecting which is often the distributors telling them um, what it's going to do for the weekend projected numbers are the numbers you see in the news things they don't actually wait to get all the box office results so they tell you basically uh, what it's going to do for the weekend it's sort of like calling an election or something um, so if you see, most of those numbers are down severely uh, versus the prediction. Um, so some of them are really bad, some not. Obviously, Suicide Squad is something specific to the movie. Uh, the amount of underperformance is so dramatic. It can't just be something that's a theater thing um, that people aren't going to theaters. Um, and that was released on HBO Max at the same time, which is cut into it. But even things like Jungle Cruise and Free Guy and all of those, these are not really impressive results relative to their budgets. So budgets will have to come down a lot. Uh, G.I. Joe did disastrously versus its budget. So those budgets either can't be that high in the future or um, we have to see a lot higher numbers from theaters. Um, so maybe some of it is the window with HBO releasing everything right away. Yeah. And then some people expecting it within a month or something um, to come out, uh, to come on video. But I'm not sure. I think it... It does create more danger that that window will be shortened and all of those sorts of things. And so it just creates the possibility for real cheapening of the product, you know? Um, Have you gone back to movies? Yeah. Yeah. So I was a serial movie goer. Yeah, I saw Jungle Cruise, Free Guy, and Suicide Squad of those in theaters, even though I can see some of those at home. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I went in Oklahoma City, went here, I checked out a few different chains, things like that. Um, and uh, wonderful. Theater experience is wonderful. Were, the, were there a lot of people in the theaters with you? Yeah. 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 Um, but, but, you know, I mean, yes, but like, for instance, uh, it, well, I mean, it depends. So, uh, yeah, for all of them there were. But I saw Suicide Squad at a... Um, place that's limited in terms of screens so at most places like around here and stuff you're going to have like um uh multiplexes that are going to that would have been playing to show it in a bunch of things and so for those people if you went and saw suicide squad around here you probably were in a pretty empty theater because they gave them a lot of screens they played mm -hmm. on a lot of screens so the per screen average would be low which you can see there anyway on the numbers you could click on uh, a particular movie and it's going to give you a projection if you do that. Uh, I don't know if, does that do it? Yeah, so if you click one of them, you should get it. Yeah, so this is the kind of thing you want to see. So it goes shows you domestic box office, and then it will have a shaded area at the beginning, which will show by week and stuff what they would estimate the movie will do at domestic box office. And then you'll see a line, and it's high or low or something like that. And so is it developing along the ways that you'd expect. Free Guy's holding really well and stuff, so that, you know, the... Results from Free Guy and from Suicide Squad were totally different. Suicide Squad had really bad drops. The problem lately, though, and this might have to do with the window, we don't know, or maybe segmenting of the population or what, um, although there's some decline in opening weekend, the drops for all movies, um, or I should say, the drops for any movie versus like the genre of how that movie normally drops week to week have been deeper. So that's the kind of number that I see that's really concerning. So historically, if you opened a horror movie, so there's like Don't Breathe 2 came out or something, I think. Any sort of horror movie, unless it's some, you know, a handful of very different kind of horror movies. Normally what's going to happen is it'll have a fine looking opening weekend, but the drop will be extremely severe over half the audience the first week and then the second week and so on. Even if um, it's a movie everyone wants to see and everyone likes because it's very front loaded with who's going to view it. And so everyone who wants to see that horror thing is waiting for it to come out. It comes out, they see it. 
and it doesn't build with word of mouth and stuff to a wider population. They're just not normally how it works. But for other kinds of movies, family movies and things like that, there's much less severe drop usually if there's positive word of mouth on it. Um, and here, I would say if you try to use comparables and estimate like how much people actually like this movie, what the exit um, polling shows and stuff like that, the drops have been severe. So maybe it's that there's a there's a certain group of people who just aren't going to the movies no matter what, and other people are eager to see anything, they go to it, and then you've uh, used them up after that first weekend, right? Or maybe it is um, the more casual moviegoer is waiting for it to come out or something mm-hmm. like that. You know, it could be something like that. But what you're seeing is really the, the issue is in the drops. The drops are too severe. And um, that makes a really big difference. You know, You know, compounding from listening to this and everything. Um, if something drops 30% each week for the for four weeks or something, that would be a very successful movie versus something dropping 50% or more. Sure. Now, Suicide Squad, uh, that's particularly the movie and stuff, I think. But you had like 70% drops there. So, Have you noticed anything in the pricing at movie theaters? Well, they release their pricing and stuff, actually. I think Cinemark gives the information. And their 10K. And yeah. the their 10K, average the pricing. And stuff, yeah. yeah. Um, so... I, I mean, that was because always a thing. I mean, viewership was, I think, down, but pricing's gone up. Yes, and spend on and not as dramatic as people thought. Yeah. And spend on concessions has done well. Yeah, um, I mean, versus buying at home and stuff, that they, they'll do fine that way. If you look at the average ticket price, the average actual realized ticket price by something like a Cinemark, because remember, a bunch of people could be on uh, subscription plans. And then you have a bunch of people who are going on, you know, Tuesdays or whatever, if it's $5 instead of the normal price that you have. So it's well below the advertised price that people think is being paid. Um, but yeah, you could, for some of these, you could have a family of, you could buy tickets for family of three or four people on average for the price that you're paying at home. You know, there is a big gap with the pricing so far. But uh, I think the issue is more, to me, worrying about confusion for people about what's a TV movie, what's a movie that you release in theaters and stuff. It's all about the positioning of it. And by making it an event that you see in theaters and then it's months until it comes out on anything, um, that's created a thing where that's a special kind of experience. People are willing to spend more for it. They're willing to make an event of it. And it it gives a certain, um, you know, it gives a certain positioning to that kind of thing that seems to make it more important to people. If Black Widow seems kind of just like WandaVision or something to people, then that confusion can be a a big problem, I would say. And that's more what I'm worried about uh, for the industry overall, you know? And we've seen some trends in that way anyway with smaller movies like that confusion being there mm-hmm. or independent movies and, and things along those way. But, um, yeah, it you know, and especially what these things cost. To make. Yeah, yeah. they cost to make. Yeah, they're bigger bets nowadays. You know, because uh, some of these things we're talking about, um, even if they're not a huge movie, I think uh, take the G.I. Joe movie, which was never intended to be a giant movie or something they knew that it was so-so in terms of how likely you were going to do on a sequel like that. Um, you know, you could make a season to two seasons of like prestige TV on some HBO thing or whatever for about the price of that. Probably. Yeah. So do you want a season of TV or do you want a movie? You know, um, the two are getting closer together and that's the danger. Um, so I do worry about that stuff. We'll see how it goes in you know the next months and stuff like that. In a lot of ways, I think it was kind of the worst thing imaginable for movie theaters, how this played out because um, it was the lockdown thing was severe that way yeah. for movies and for airlines and things like that, much more so than others. And those became kind of obsessed about those specific venues. And then um, that made it hard for studios and stuff to release because of the way that the the economics work there's no point in releasing a um movie when there's not people in the theaters to see it because you lose the movie forever yeah the capital you put up right you're you're much better off holding an asset for a little while to release it into the best situation but if you don't have product no one will go back to say it's like a negative negative flywheel effect yeah so you have this problem that people say, I'm going to go to theaters when there's the product I want to see in theaters. And then studios are saying, well, I'll put it out when people are, we know that people are going to be in the theaters. 
Um, and that could cause problems over time, especially with people testing out these different things about, um, you know, about streaming and stuff like that. Now there'll be some lawsuits, you know, I think you saw that with like black widow and stuff, but obviously all the HBO max stuff will require payouts to different people and stuff because, um, you know, they wasn't released the way that it was intended to be. And there's people who have bonuses and things tied to that. So there'll be a lot of things that'll be difficult to fix that way. And then the other thing is it's a question of for these studios and things about thinking how much should we spend? I mean, at the end of this year, HBO Max, I mean, HBO, uh, you know, they're a big conglomerate that's, you know, but um, someone at that company will be looking at it and say, well, how much do we really spend rolling out HBO to get this many subscribers? Because if you take the product that we moved and how much that would normally get in theaters, are we talking about like capex of you know a billion dollars or something that we're going to put into this, especially if this goes on for a while? Whereas some other studios didn't do any of that stuff, mm-hmm. so it changes the economics a lot for it. Um, and what I was saying that it was particularly bad, like for the businesses, is it just so happened that the way the government handled this is particularly bad for movie theaters because. One, like movie theaters are seen as a specific place as opposed to other sorts of venues where you wouldn't want to go. Uh, so more, I think, people became concerned with, which caused the um, the thing that we're talking about where you didn't put out product and then you're going to have too much product later and all of that. Mm-hmm. But then they combined that with really big assistance for like paycheck um, uh, protection stuff and like... Um, uh, easy money and all those sorts of things, which actually meant that you didn't have a mass closing of all sorts of screens and things like that. So you didn't drastically bring down the supply. See, if money had been tight and everything, there'd been bankruptcies and all this. Look, AMC was able to raise money, you know? So it really was the worst of all ways for um, investors in movie theater chains because you didn't take out a lot of supply. You had like this massive recession that has not taken out supply. I was going to say, extrapolating that out, do you think there will be less screens in the future? I think there have to be less screens. There certainly have to be less seats. Um, I think increasing a lot of food. Now, some good things came out of it in terms of there's going to be way less interaction with people, way less need for labor over time. There's going to be a lot more digitally picking your seat out ahead of time, going directly to the theater without any in-between. Is that what you do when you go? It depends on what chain. Sometimes you can't yeah. do that. Mm. Um, but I mean, but I mean, I don't even think there'll be. In, in some cases, I think there there's not even going to be kiosks, and um, and people once you've pre bought tickets. I actually mean that I think that there'll be more and more things where pre buying tickets and concessions can be done on a phone immediately before, and then you're going to sit down, and then you're going to get those things in your seat, as opposed to the way that they run stands and things now. Um, I think a lot of chains will adopt that kind of stuff. Because th- it works better for them than for a lot of industries that have done it because of COVID. The contactless stuff, I mean, that economically makes sense for mm-hmm. a movie theater anyway. Yeah. Um, so it's going to almost be more like an airline. So if you're going to do all these things for yourself and yeah. you know, sit down for yourself and whatever. Um, and fewer people around doing it. But uh, yeah, I, I think that you need a lot less seats. They've been investing a lot in upgrading things and having fewer seats and all that and getting more money out of people because it may end up being a smaller segment of the population. That's the real danger. I mean, already right now, I'd say half the US population probably doesn't really go to movies. They see a movie a year or something. Everything is the other half of it. Um, you know, but the big thing with this is it changes the economics of the movie entirely. Not just for movie theaters. That's what everyone's obsessed with. Is Are you saying from like theaters. the studio's perspective? Yes, completely yeah. changes it. Because if you look, I mean, I'm sure the numbers has it, but if you look at domestic movies, I don't think people realize, I mean, we talk about dollars here and stuff, mm-hmm. how big a movie is over its entire life in the domestic. So domestic, weirdly, it includes Canada. It's it's U.S. and outlying territories plus, you know, Canada. Um, that's always been the way it is. Sometimes it's called North American box office, but they mean North America excluding mm-hmm. Mexico. So they were probably right before COVID. I would guess there were more than five, less than 10 maybe movies that 20 to 50 million tickets were sold for. Okay. Um, that is a huge number of people seeing that, considering how many people are going to see it later on other venues and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, so we're talking about 
TV shows and things that are in the U.S. alone on any given weekend, way, way lower numbers. So what you do is you don't have the same marketing behind it and everything. This has always been a way to market something so that it can then have value in all its different life, lives later, even if we're talking about things like, you know, future TV series, future um, uh, merchandise, future whatever things. It's really hard to launch that same stuff without it being a movie. Yes, there's some in some things, you know, like maybe a Netflix things like Stranger Things, maybe that hit the culture the same way that a movie would, you know, but there's really rare to be able to launch anything um, that spawns off that much as value in an IP. And then the IP has value forever. Um, you know, they're allegedly, supposedly, whatever, we'll see if they really do it, going to put out a James Bond movie, which was planned for a year and a half ago. If they really do that, okay, uh, the first one came out a little over 60 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. That's pretty valuable IP. That you yeah. take a book and turn it into that, and that family, one of two families, uh, but the one that's left, um, has made a ton of money off of it, a fortune uh, from it. And there aren't really a lot of other ways to create really valuable IP. And I think that's something that we overlook about how much you know how movies work and stuff that the focus is completely on this like theater thing about how much they're making each week's in box office but you know if you had you know uh some of these things and they didn't come out with movies for a while and whatever you don't it doesn't have a lot of value that way i mean um there's a king kong movie not that long ago uh king kong was a hugely successful movie uh, we're talking about like, you know, whatever, um, more than 80 years ago. So that create, cause it placed a such a large audience on those screens and things everywhere. Um, it creates, um, an image of that thing that creates an IP mm -hmm. and all the Marvel characters you have, yeah, all they the Disney sell characters. Stuff. It will be kids shows and merchandise mm -hmm. and things. And it plays all around the world and everything. And without that platform, you know, We'll see, but it's a positioning thing. It's a way of people thinking about it because people don't generally think about it the same way when it's something that you can uh, watch, you know, as part of your HBO Max subscription or something. The production budget for Black Widow was two hundred million. Yeah, I believe that. That's what that's in, in the, line. that's in line with a Marvel movie. Yeah. That is insanity. I mean, you think about the upfront costs. I mm -hmm. mean, that's just crazy. I mean, you think about how much money that is for a single movie. Yeah, and compared to some other Marvel movies, it hasn't done as well, you know, pre-COVID things. But actually, if you look at the financials there, if that's correct, the production budget, it'll have done okay. Um, rule of thumb, if you make about your production budget in, in domestic, you do okay. Yeah, and that's, yeah, they were under it, but, you know, yeah. internationally made it, so, yeah. Yeah, and it's still playing. I mean, it's it hasn't played out everywhere and stuff, so. Craziness. Um, yeah. But you can see they're way below the expectations that they had, but... Um, you know, a lot of the issue is the more in between things, you know, um, what does that mean? You wouldn't want to see what happened with the suicide squad one, but more like the things that I was saying is like the like GI Joe, which, which didn't do well and stuff. And another one in that same sort of category did fine, uh, mortal Kombat, but budgets of 90 million or something are more of the dangerous ones. I mm -hmm. think, I think you'll still have your $200 million movies if it is a superhero movie and Avengers movie and stuff. But um, maybe a James Bond, maybe a Mission Impossible, you know, uh, Fast and Furious, those sorts of things. But um, a lot of movies that are made are made to be in the 50 to 100 million type thing. Taking risks on kind of creating new IP or, or not new IP, but taking IP from a book or from, you know, a series or whatever and, and turning that into something that you make a, a lot of money off of, but also something that could have a lasting, you know, make money. I mean, a big part of making a single movie is the expectation you'll be able to make more in the future, you know, and all the money from that. Um, yeah, it's almost like an investment in the future, future movies. Yeah. And I just think it's difficult to do if not through theaters. I think people are overlooking that with the idea, well, I, you know, that this business will still work the same way if you're watching things from home. So you think the production budgets will go down? If it goes. it's hard, I mean, you can do things for a lot cheaper. You can pay people a lot less. I mean, some of these people are paid, you know, tens of millions of dollars in some cases, especially if you include the, the uh, incentive compensation they get on box office points and stuff. But, um, costs, it's hard to get costs down when you have this kind of thing change. I mean, all sorts of businesses are that way. They're pretty sticky. Eventually they come down, but 
the way they've come down probably is that you have a few flops of really overly big movies. So people try with some smaller movies and things like that. Um, the marketing costs are also really big for making a movie, usually. Not so much this year and last year, but normally the way that you do them. So uh, I think that some things are changing that way. We'll see how much of them do change. There's an incredible amount, not really in the near future, a little bit, but there, there's been a, um, there's also a problem that there's, which will be good for theaters, but not so much for studios, that you've got too much um, content in it, uh, too close to each other compared to what you would normally have. Um, it has not been spread out well enough over the last, um, you know, year or so. So there could be too much at the end of 2021 is 2022 if everything goes as planned, but a lot of things might be bumped. So crazy. Yeah. Crazy, crazy. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us. I could like slice this and make it its own podcast uh, and update yeah. on movie theaters. Yeah. And Cinemark and Marcus are down a bunch mm-hmm. um, from where they started pre-COVID and they might not be, you know, I was looking at Cinemark, I guess. Uh, Marcus, you know, they own hotels and stuff, so it's a little more complicated. So if we look at yeah. Cinemark, you can see this, you know, the price is not great. So if we look at the market cap and the enterprise value, if you take the record uh, sales that it had before COVID, which is really what you should go back to. So assume it could get back to that number, right? It's not trading at a bad price. It actually looks cheap, right? It looks like it's half of what it should be trading at today. The stock price and stuff is like, you're getting at more than a 50% discount. Mm -hmm. But what I'm saying is, that's assuming a complete return to that. Yeah, and, and, and you think there's been a huge fundamental shift. Yeah, now we see lots of stocks in a lot of different industries that do kind of assume that full sh- shift back to it. Uh, food things, um, you know, like restaurant things and stuff like that. I've been seeing their price to go back there. You know, some things, whether they're uh, a lot of different other things that were affected by COVID already priced as if they'd be back to that previous uh, high. So you're kind of like betting on it as if it's happening today. We're way off of that, though. Um, and so I wouldn't worry about it normally. And when this started, I wasn't worried about it, but the change in the way that movies have been released and stuff has been so severe that I think it has caused people to try different things and stuff and to think about movies a different way that there is the risk that things could really change that way. I did not feel that way early in the, uh, pandemic and stuff. I only felt about it in the opening back up part, which has really been in the second half of this year. It's really only if we take halfway through this year on. Uh, so, you know, June on, um, that I, I felt this way. Um, and that's not initially how the market reacted, actually, if I remember. I, I think the market was somewhat positive for a little mm-hmm. while, and then and then it's turned. But the numbers that I've been seeing with the box office things and my thinking about it are that there's more of a risk of long-term changes in the industry that could be tough for, for movies. Um, the fact of not having, you know, having theaters completely closed down, it's a one-time loss. It's, you know, if you have access to money and stuff, eventually the stock will go back to where it was. Um, that's not what worried me. Um, it, it's like I said, like this stuff, like with HBO max and those sorts of things and how people are using it. That's the one that worries me more. Yeah. And the fact that there was been a mass, you know, that a lot of theaters that don't look like they'll open back up and stuff, mm-hmm. you know, so I just don't see supply coming down fast enough right now to deal with what might be changing about demand. Uh, you might have a smaller audience, a more dedicated, smaller audience of people who want to go out to movies. And then that also there's things that might skew in terms of age and stuff. It might become more of a, um, the whole going out thing being more important than the content of what you're showing and stuff. So more focus on food and beverage and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much to everybody who asked a question. If you want to ask a question in the future for the Q&A podcast, be sure to follow me at Focus Compound on Twitter. Make sure you hit the subscribe button wherever you are watching us or listening to us. Uh, that helps spread the word. Um, and of course, uh, if you want to get access to QuickFS, go to quickfs.net and in the sign up, tell them that you came from Focus Compounding. I thank everybody so much for the support. We will see you in the next podcast. Take care.